today on CityCast DC. In case you haven't noticed the signs on every last lamppost in town, there is a local election going on. But if you're someone who's apt to walk into the polling place and not recognize any of the names on the ballot, we are not here to judge. We're here to help. Alex Coma from City Paper joins us to explain the ins and outs of a very dramatic general election ballot. It's Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. Alex Coma is here. He writes loose lips for my former haunt, Washington City Paper. Alex, thanks for coming, man. It is a pleasure to be here. So you're going to walk us through the D.C. ballot for November. And oftentimes that ballot in November is completely uninteresting because most of the action takes place in the Democratic primary. But this year, there's actually a couple of decently competitive races on the ballot. So the highest profile of them is for at-large member of the D.C. Council. You get two votes under the rules. If you live in D.C., you've probably seen a lot of street signs for candidates. And if you live in D.C., you've probably, like me, scratched your head at what these street signs mean, since nobody says on their signs what they stand for other than their name. So, Alex, you're going to walk us through this. One of the incumbents is an independent member of the D.C. Council, one of your predecessors as Loose Lips, Alyssa Silverman. She's been in council for a couple of terms. Will you uh, tell us about her? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, um, she comes from Washington City Paper and then did a stint sort of in the advocacy world, particularly on the uh, the left side of the political spectrum. She first got into office, uh, it was eight years ago now, seeking her third term. You know, sort of a good way, I think, to sum up Alyssa Silverman is that for better or worse, whether you agree with her or not, she is going to tell you exactly what she thinks on the D.C. Council. That has often taken the form of criticizing, you know, the big business interests that do tend to drive a lot of agenda at the D.C. Council. Um, That is a a favorite hobby horse of hers. She also styles herself as a fighter for workers. She has chaired the council's labor committee for the last few years and so has really put a premium on working on issues at the Department of Employment Services as they were struggling getting out unemployment um, during the pandemic. Paid leave is also a big issue for her. Had a a pretty leading role in standing up the paid family leave program and then working on the various parts of rolling it out. And, you know, she, as I said, is a polarizing personality. She has been on the council's left flank, I think it's fair to say, even in a time when uh, that wasn't an especially uh, popular place to be. The left wing of the council has certainly grown since she's been on it and is now fighting once again for her political life, faced a tough re-election four years ago and certainly faces another one now. So Alyssa is perennially a target of the well-funded interests by virtue of being kind of the quarterback almost of the left-wing bloc in the D.C. Council. This year, she's gotten a bit of bad news ahead of the election last week, was sort of slapped on the hand about this weird issue with shared poll. Can you explain this to us? 
<laughs> yeah, this it's interesting in that this whole kerfuffle involves the War 3 race, which is, of course, a race that Alyssa was not running in. Essentially, there were nine candidates running for the Democratic nomination to replace Mary Che. And as that race went on, there was, you know, a lot of consternation within more progressive circles who were looking around at the candidates. There were reasonably three or four candidates who could all sort of be fighting over a lot of the same pool of voters, folks who might, you know, broadly identify on the progressive left. And, you know, Eric Goulet, a former D.C. Council staffer, won the Washington Post endorsement. He won uh, the endorsement of Democrats for Education Reform, um, which is a a pro-charter school group operating in the city. And there was a growing fear among progressives writ large that, you know, that was going to be enough in such a highly divided field to help him carry the day. And so there started being conversations about, you know, which candidates are viable and which ones are simply going to, you know, pull votes away and throw the race to Eric Goulet. Now, in that environment, Alyssa Silverman, who, you know, is running in the November general, but not in this primary, decided to poll the race. She used money from her publicly funded campaign to do so. And then she discussed generally, she says, the results of that poll with some of the candidates in the race. And, you know, those candidates, among others, ended up dropping out in a bid to sort of boost Matt Fruman, who did end up going on to win a Democratic nomination in Ward 3. So she says, just to break it down, she Mm. says, hey, fellow lefties, you guys are going to cannibalize one another and the centrist will win. And here's some data to prove it. And after she shares this data, some of those fellow lefties drop out of the race, thereby ending the cannibalization and allowing a fellow lefty to win, which in theory would then expand Alyssa's left-wing block on the council. That's absolutely right. Um, and so, of course, Alyssa's critics, of whom there are many, say, you know, look, you wanted, as you say, expand your influence on the council. You saw this as a, a good way to do so and, you know, push to this consolidation behind Matt Fruman. Right, so that story, you know, that again, it underlines the most known thing about Alyssa Silverman. She is a kind of member of this left-wing bloc. It was one of the reasons that the Post gave for opposing her re-election. But her supporters say, hey, look, this is a person who got family leave through in Washington. This is a person who's been responsible for a lot of progressive legislation that we like. Anita Bonds is the another incumbent. She is another at-large member. She's a Democrat. What is she known for on the council? What's her argument for re-election? Yeah, well, Anita Bonds has been around in D.C. politics for a very long time. I mean, she was an advisor to Marion Barry. She has been in and out of government. She ran the D.C. Democratic Party for quite some time before eventually winning election, I believe, 10 years ago now. So she's been there, too, for a while. I mean, that's kind of her biggest pitch is her longevity, her experience. Oh, boy. Yeah, you know, that, of course, the flip side of that is there's a lot to criticize. And Well, there's also, a. I mean, are there specific, you know, bills? or acts of oversight that she is known for? Or, I mean, you can also say is she a person who hasn't done a whole lot of that. (laughs) Absolutely. Over the last few years, she has chaired the council's housing committee. Mayor Bowser calls her the council member for housing at every chance she gets. And that is sort of the brand she's tried to build. But that is tricky because 
you know, talk to pretty much any housing activist or advocate, and they will tell you that her oversight of the city's housing agencies has been lackluster at best. You know, I reported a story several months ago now where she appeared not to understand that the city has a wait list for housing vouchers, um, which stands at tens of thousands of people long, um, and it has been a wait list in the city for some time. It is essentially an extremely basic fact that you would hope that the council member for housing would know, and she appeared not to. And this has all come to a head right now when we're talking because of the state of affairs at the D.C. Housing Authority, the city's public housing agency, which is one of the agencies Councilmember Bonds oversees. You know, a recent federal report outlined a series of issues that have been ongoing at DCHA for many years now and have gone unaddressed. And a lot of people, I think, are quite reasonably asking, you know, Anita Bonds is promising reforms now in the wake of the report. You know, where were you for the last 10 years, essentially? Well, and Silverman was very involved in breaking them over the coals for that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's a rare thing indeed that anyone on the D.C. Council gives much attention to the D.C. Housing Authority. And to the extent that they did, Alyssa Silverman did. I can't say that I've seen too many council members attend D.C. Housing Authority Board of Commissioners meetings. And I have seen Alyssa do that. You know, she is not perfect, but she has at least focused on the governance issues there. So that adds another layer on top of this, even as by virtue of being the Democratic nominee, Anita Bonds is almost certainly going to win. So the the next two candidates who are kind of viable candidates were both the two who were endorsed by The Washington Post, which once upon a time, that was like sort of a game changer, maybe even a game ender. I'm not sure if that's true anymore, just because the nature of media is different now and the Post's sort of local footprint has changed. But one of them is another incumbent. He's currently a member representing Ward 5, but he is, for complicated reasons, running now for at-large. His name is Kenyon McDuffie. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, absolutely. He's been on the council, I believe, also for 10 years now. And, you know, as you allude to, this is not what Kenyon McDuffie hoped he would be running for. By all accounts, he probably thought that by now he would be the Democratic nominee to become D.C.'s next attorney general. He had lined up quite a bit of support. He gave up the chance to run for re-election in his Ward 5 seat because he said he wanted to take on this citywide post, you know, a chance to work on the various legal issues that he has experienced from his time as a federal prosecutor and as well as a D.C. council member. And, you know, then he got challenged uh, by one of his fellow candidates in the race, Bruce Spiva, who said that he didn't meet D.C.'s very narrow legal requirements for who can run for attorney general. And the Board of Elections and the courts agreed and uh, threw him off the ballot. Yeah. So now he's running for at-large and he's no longer a Democrat. He's become an independent for the purpose of this race. Exactly. You know, because the Democrats have already nominated Adina Bonds, he was left without too many options, frankly, if he wanted to stay around in politics. So what does he stand for? What's he running on? Absolutely. So his background is, you know, he started his council career focusing mainly, I would say, on criminal justice issues. He was the Judiciary Committee chair for a time. He helped shepherd through the passage of the NEAR Act, which contains a variety of police oversight reforms. There's been a lot of struggles that he's been part of to get Uh, the mayor and the police department to actually implement those reforms. And in recent years, he's turned his focus more to, you know, small business and economic development. That is the committee he's chaired for the last few years. He's put a big focus on 
overseeing the city's certified business enterprise program. That's their program to essentially help small and local businesses get a piece of uh, government work and trying to uplift minority businesses as part of that effort. Um, He's also worked quite frequently on affordable housing and development issues. These are, of course, uh, some of the most hot button issues in the whole city. And he has generally been viewed as a pro-development voice while still trying to find ways to put, you know, equity, a favorite buzzword of his, into uh, the, the city's plans for development. So he's this time writing a lot of support from business interests and stuff who are, I'm not sure how much of it is love for him and how much of it is just trying to get rid of Silverman. But how did he vote in the council on the various progressive measures that she in particular is associated with? I think a good way to describe it would be that he was never in one camp solidly or another on a few issues here and there, especially something like the NEAR Act. You would see him siding with the more progressive members of the council. But when it does come to economic issues in particular, you see him tending to side a lot more with the mayor, a lot more with, crucially, Chairman Phil Mendelson, who represent as you say, the moderate, business-friendly, you know, sort of style that was in vogue on the council for a long time. And then the other person the Post endorsed was somebody who has not been around for a long time. He's not a familiar name. Graham McLaughlin. What's his deal? Yeah, he has a, a really interesting story. If you look at his professional background, it's pretty standard. He's worked in healthcare. His current role is, I think, working on social and ethical responsibility programs for a healthcare company. So you would say, like, what's this, you know, like he calls himself a corny white guy doing running from Ward 7 in the D.C. council election. For people who are not up on ward geography, Ward 7 is a historically you know, almost entirely African-American ward. It contains some like fairly lovely middle class neighborhoods. It also contains some pretty rough neighborhoods. Yeah. Absolutely. But, you know, a lot of his personal background comes from the volunteer work he's done. He's opened up his home on on many occasions to returning citizens, people coming out of federal prison and tried to work with them to better understand how they can, you know, get back into society, get a job, understanding the challenges they faced as they try and do so. He's been quite vocal about, you know, what he wants to see as the D.C. jail is, in fact, reimagined, I think is the correct term as the mayor works on that. So an unusual background, to be Sure. So when the Post endorsed him or when they, the Post didn't endorse Silverman and it said, you know, she's left and we basically don't think we should go left, where would he likely differ from where the council is right now? In general, he has struck a more moderate tone on some issues. He cites his experience in the private sector. So he talks about wanting to do all the things that businesses like to hear, cut red tape, make it easier for small businesses to open and thrive in the city, that sort of thing. However, on what you would sort of term smart growth urbanist issues broadly, he is maybe a little to the left of the median council member. He cites the fact that he doesn't own a car, that he bikes everywhere. He scores very well among the groups like Greater, Greater Washington. They care about these issues. He is very pro, you know, not just development, but opening up, you know, areas around transit to more development. That's stuff that people who are interested in urbanism are going to be very glad to hear. And so that makes him an unusual candidate. He is, you know, not sticking strictly to one side of the traditional council battle lines or the other. But if you had to, you know, sort of put him into one, you might say he's the more moderate option. And I think the fact that the Post endorsed him kind of gives that away. Right. There's a bunch of other names on the at-large ballot. Do any of them have a chance? 
<laughs> probably not. But, you know, the other one to mention is Kareem Marshall. He is probably the one with far and away the most experience in D.C. government among the other, you know, at-large hopefuls. He's worked in a variety of departments, working on everything from environmental issues to affordable housing and development. He's a lawyer. You know, he is the one that brought the campaign finance complaint, you know, asking for an investigation into Alyssa Silverman, which has helped him get his name out there. He's raising a, a decent amount of money um, that puts him pretty on par with Graham McLaughlin. So, you know, I don't think you can count him out, but I would be very surprised to see anyone other than that trio of Bonds, Silverman, and McDuffie taking the top two spots. A lot of the other folks running are, you know, perennial candidates. Uh, David Schwartzman, he's the Green Party candidate. You know, Fred Hill running as an independent. He's run for a variety of uh, posts, I think most recently the Ward 8 seat. So it would be a big surprise if we saw, say, Giuseppe Niosi, the Republican win. But uh, I suppose you never know. Right. Anyway, I am, you know, a former editor of City Paper and a former writer for City Paper and a former local reporter. And I'd like to think of myself as like up on things. But when, every year when I go to vote and I walk in and I look at the names on the state board of education race, I have to admit, I find myself unfamiliar. Will you just like, what does the state board of education in DC do? And why does it matter? <laughs> I think you are not alone in that confusion. Essentially, the state board hasn't had a lot of power over education issues in the city ever since a lot of control of education shifted to the mayor under Adrian Fenty. This was a big you know, push to improve and reform city schools. It happened back in 2006 and 2007. What the state board can do are a few things around the margins. It's not a traditional school board. What it does do, however, is set things like you know, it, it reviews academic curricula. Like, for instance, they just spent a lot of time going over, you know, what should be in the social studies classes that kids are learning right now, trying to update those. They'll go over things like how do teachers get credentialed in the city or things like what does it take uh, if you want to graduate high school? Very small bore policy issues to the point where a lot of folks I spoke to running for state board say, Listen, the most impact that we have is the fact that we're close to parents, we're close to teachers. We can take these issues and we can raise them up to the mayor because we have expertise. A lot of them are current or former teachers um, or administrators. Right. There's a push in, in some quarters in city politics to take away mayoral control of the schools. Absolutely. Which would then super empower this board. Is there anybody who's actually running this year who in the D.C. council races who favors taking away the mayoral control of schools? So this was really got fought out primarily in the mayor's race with Councilman Robert White. You know, he was challenging Muriel Bowser on many issues, but was definitely urging a greater, let's say, skepticism of mayoral control. It's very rare indeed to find anybody who wants to return to a fully independent school board as it was many years ago in D.C. But you'll find people running, for instance, in Ward 3, we mentioned Matt Fruman already. He's been a longtime school's advocate. And while, you know, he is urging maybe a more nuanced approach, but is definitely going to propose ideas that chip away at mayoral control around the margins, maybe making the Office of the State Superintendent for Education independent um, of the mayor. Proponents of the idea say, you know, a little more transparency and oversight, a little less of the mayor being able to, you know, directly control such an agency. Zachary Parker, he's the Ward 5 nominee. He comes from the state board. He, too, uh, is, is no fan of mayoral control. So I don't know that you're going to see anybody saying, yeah, let's throw it back to the way things were. But you are seeing a move in the city to have a bit more skepticism of the system as it exists now. 
back to the State Board of Education. Are there any candidates we ought to know about? Yeah, well, I think that the name that everyone will know is the one we've mentioned already, which is Eric Goulet. You know, after his run for council was unsuccessful, he turned around and he saw that there was a opening for the Ward 3 seat on the state board, and he turned around and decided to run for that instead. So that's probably the one that's going to be, you know, the biggest name. He's running against Michael Sriqui, who's an advisory neighborhood commissioner and a um, parent who's been active in schools issues. Those two are duking it out in Ward 3, you know, firing back and forth about whose kids go to school where, and it it is definitely getting messy. By and large, the differences tend to come down to personality. You know, the state board doesn't play any role in deciding mayoral control issues. As you identify, that's all on the council. But Eric Goulet is a big proponent of mayoral control, maybe the most vocal of anybody running for state board this year. Michael Sriqui, you know, he believes in mayoral control, but does want to make changes to it. Like that is a lot of the terrain that these candidates are fighting over, even if that's never going to be a, like a vote that they take, but it might be, you know, something that they work on, they raise awareness about, they talk a lot about as state board reps. So there's also a mayoral race this year. And although uh, the action was in the Democratic primary, there are other names besides that of Muriel Bowser on the ballot. And one of those names will be recognizable to longtime readers of your paper. His name is Dennis Sobin. He's been on City paper covers going back to the 80s uh, and is one of the more entertaining names in D.C. Will you explain him to us? (laughs) Well, he almost defies explanation because, yes, he is what you would say sort of a quintessential city paper character. You know, going back to the 80s, he has been active in city politics largely because he has been active in the city sex trade. He has run campaigns staffed by sex workers. He has run phone sex hotlines, which he says both won him and lost him millions of dollars. He spent a a good deal of time in jail for a variety of criminal charges and uh, doesn't seem to have a terribly good relationship with his son, who at one point had secured a restraining order against him. Just a a very strange character who has run for council and for mayor a variety of times and is the libertarian nominee for mayor this time, running on a platform of decriminalizing sex work and most drugs. And that's kind of it. Those are his main issues. And what would he do if he won? Well, (laughs) interestingly enough, he told me that he really thinks that Mayor Bowser is doing a great job and that he would like to continue basically everything that she's doing, except for the whole decriminalizing sex work and most drugs. And then he would bring on board Mayor Bowser to just run the city, you know, for him. So it's not super clear what he would do. But considering that there's something like 2,300 registered libertarians in a city of 700,000, I wouldn't worry about it. So just so folks know, there's also a couple of other pretty contentious races that'll be on various D.C. ballots this year. There's a council race in Ward 3, which was sort of a lot of upper northwest Washington. And it's got a a Democrat against a a Republican who is at least viable enough to win the post endorsement. And there's also a ballot issue around minimum wage for restaurant workers. And both those things are issues I'm sure Alex knows a ton about, but we're actually dealing with in in whole standalone CityCast episodes, so you can find those wherever you find your podcasts. And Alex, do you yourself vote early or are you going to show up on election day? <laughs> well, if I wasn't working on election day, then yes, there is that je ne sais quoi of showing up to the polling place. But since I'll be out there uh, hitting the polls, I've dropped my ballot off at a Dropbox already, which anybody can do, any library around the city. Thank you so much for being here. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Mike. 
And before you go, some quick news. Dan and Tanya Snyder have hired Bank of America to explore options for selling the Washington Commanders football team. The unpopular owner's many Twitter critics are predictably over the moon about this. In addition to presiding over decades of mediocrity, Snyder's been accused of creating a toxic workplace and has been investigated by Congress as well as a top lawyer hired by the NFL. But don't choreograph that end zone celebration just yet. Officially, they're only exploring options, and those might include bringing in partners. Meanwhile, we've got another Silverline update for you. WMATA, that's Metro, is considering creating an express train option for the extension that's opening on November 15th. That would shave six minutes off the total trip to Dulles, which doesn't actually seem like a lot. And it turns out that's because the line does not actually have a third set of tracks that you can use to pass another train. So even though the express train would skip six or seven stops, it will only be able to catch up with the train in front of it, not pass it. And finally, a public hearing in the Prince William County Board of Supervisors that started on Tuesday evening went all night. It lasted a total of 16 hours. What was the holdup? A proposed plan to open thousands of acres of land to data center development. Supporters feel data centers will provide needed revenue to the county. Opponents have environmental concerns. After much hemming and hawing, the Digital Gateway Plan amendment passed 5-2. to two. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. A reminder that we've got a bunch of election guides for you if you live in the DMV. Check the show notes for links to all of those. I'm Michael Schaefer from Politico. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. All right. Oh, yeah. Outro.